join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. I'm David McBurnett, and uh, uh, mainly known for being a producer of music television, but have also worked in the festival business and the promotion business and all ends of production. I've also done a lot of computer work. I worked for the federal government running the Census Bureau in uh, 2000, which was a real interesting job for me. It yeah. was like, well, I've never done this, and he, I got more respect for federal bureaucrats than I had before, because it's not easy. That's interesting, you know? and, yeah. Uh, and that's, that's it. I mean, I grew up in Connecticut, I was born in Washington, D.C., grew up in Connecticut. So don't tell anybody I'm a Connecticut Yankee. I was a long time ago. We accept you. <laughs> and, uh, I was a, a prodigy on piano from 5 to 12, and then my house ruptured. It, was, uh, it never was very stable, and then it went to hell. And uh, I got shipped off to a boarding school for a couple of years and finally quit that, went became a, a hippie and a musician and, and a few other trades that I won't mention. Sure. And uh, uh, and I've always been into music. I, I stopped playing piano. Uh, psychologically, it was part of the rupture. I do play guitar. I don't play it well, but I play it and I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and I got involved quickly in the music scene in Boston. My brother's roommate at Harvard was a guy named Andy Pratt. So I was carrying amps for him. And... Uh, uh, setting up, learning how to wrap cables, all that good stuff. And uh, ended up doing a lot of work with another band called Cloud, which Otis Spahn, uh, Muddy Waters bass player, guitar piano player, was their mentor. And uh, time went on, and I did a lot of stuff. And uh, actually got Andy's first contract with uh, Columbia Records, which was wow. interesting. And uh, he's what you call a one-hit wonder. Avenging Annie was his big song, you know. Gotcha. Um, and it's a good song, you know, but he was um, unfortunately a one-hit wonder. Yeah. Um, when you were when you were growing up, um, was there a lot of music in your household? How did you come to play piano? Uh, well, we had one, and uh, my brothers tried, and they weren't into it. My mother played, but she ended up with arthritis, and I was reaching the thing when I could reach it, and oh, okay. uh, it just felt right to me. I still, I got an electric piano in the next room that I look at and play once in a while. But, sure. Um, it's one of those things. I dragged around the Steinway for years and didn't play it. Uh, but it's in my DNA. You know, and uh, Once you learn a piano, you understand a lot more about music you know, because of the construction of it and the, and the music theory. Yeah. So that was fortunate for me because I, in fact, one of the tunes I played when I was young was uh, The Professor Gives Out. It was Boogie Woogie. I played Bach and I played Beethoven and Rock Miller and all those characters. Um, but I, my teacher also taught me Boogie Woogie. And Professor Gives Out was written by Roland Berg, mm -hmm. which I didn't really realize that was Professor Longhair until I was down here for a few years. Gotcha. So, 
Um, and I always liked that. So anyway, long story short, um, I left home at 16, went to Cambridge and did all the Cambridge and California stuff. And I met a cat in Connecticut who was uh, in Rhinoceros, the band Rhinoceros, which was a put-together supergroup. And he and I formed a traveling musical commune and came to New Orleans. We were the Mud People, Papa Dookie and the Mud People, which... Uh, so I wait a minute, you are in Connecticut, he's in California, and y'all No, 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 he was in Connecticut. <clears throat> okay, he was in Connecticut with you. And we, and we met up, and we became buds, and decided it was a good idea at the time. So we bought a couple of school buses, and painted them white, built, you know, beds and stuff on the inside, and had a traveling musical commune. Really? We came down here and put shows on out in the Battery, out in Wallace, Louisiana. In fact, Tommy Malone wrote a song about us. Cool. And Tommy flipped him out. I said, you know, Tommy, my mud people says, you're what? I said, oh, yeah. And uh, Davey knows about us, but he had already moved away. Um, Davey Malone, we were buds a long time. The radiator's cat, but Tommy is really super talented. And that's what got me here. And like many people, I came here for a couple months and stayed. You know, what, never really did, left. You know? How did y'all arrive at, at down here? Is it, you said, where'd y'all go? At the, uh, the battery is between the levee and the river. His family, Duke Edwards, is a, uh, not the Edwards family, he's a black guy. It's a free, his family free Ethiopians that were brought here to supervise the plantation blacks. Uh -huh. And they worked for land and money. And they ended up with like a bunch of square miles of land on the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. That now they still have a bunch of it. They lost the Civil War and they got it back. And they still lease till Demonte and those people. It's very fertile ground, and they and, have a couple lanes there in uh, in Wallace, Louisiana. In Wallace, okay. Yeah, and they uh, and that was my introduction to a lot of things. I mean, we we're there, and Duke was like the like what you call a prince, you know, the next up and coming guy, and it's very cool Ethiopian heritage heritage family, right? And we're there a month or something, and I go to a Black Baptist wake, right? And this is a Connecticut Yankee, right? And we're sitting in the back. I'm the only white person in the joint. And that's where I saw where a lot of our music comes from, you know, this 70-year-old lady. I'm 72, right? Get up and dance with me, Jesus. It's an open casket. I'm going, he kept, Duke kept coming over and shutting my chin because it was like, you know, yeah. But it was great. I mean, I heard those rhythms. I heard those chanting. I heard the call and repeat. You know, sure. Right there in person. You know, no, and just. Uh, I mean, it's, I can see those images and hear that music right now. I mean, it was um, it stuck with you. Very powerful for me to understand that. You know, if you don't, if you haven't experienced Black Baptist music down here, you just don't know that side of it. You know, there's a sure. great. I, I suggest to anybody. It's a great documentary called Rumble about the influence of American Indians on blues and rock and roll. And I'm a musicologist, I'm acclaimed as that. I've made shows for HBO and Family Channel and I thought I knew everything. Well, about five years ago when the book came out, uh, How uh, how the World Made New Orleans from Conga Square to, to Spanish Doubloon to Conga Square, right? About the whole Latin influence. I used to think it was Miami, New Orleans, but it's not, it's, it's, it's New Orleans, Havana. Right, mm -hmm. and that whole undercurrent, and the first opera was here, and all that stuff. So I go on my merry way. Now I know more, right? And then Rumble comes out. Uh, it's really a primary character is a guy named Link Ray, who 
nobody knows about unless you're a guitar player, and then you know who that is. The man who invented the power chord. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had the only instrumental song ever banned from the radio. Because they thought it would start rumbles. This was like a <laughs> gang thing and, a, you know, West Side Story and all that stuff. You know, yeah. And, uh, um, an incredible play, but it's all, it takes you all back. Ivan's in it. Ivan Neville, because there's a lot of Indian blood in the Neville family, you know. Uh -huh. I have Indian blood. I have Cherokee blood, but they have a lot more blood than I do. And it's like Robbie Robertson says, you know, he's in it a lot, is that. Um, he says, if you're, you know, be proud to be an Indian, be careful who you tell, you know, especially if you're full blood. But he uh, says, you know, the blacks, you know, they, they ran away from the plantations and the Indians were like, well, they don't like us very much too, so come on in here or hang with us. And <laughs> right. pretty soon there's black Indians running around and, you know. Sure. And there's a statistic about if you're been in this country, please, pre-world, pre-Civil War, your African heritage has a lot of Indian blood in it. That just was that was happening. You know? Sure. Um, so, and and the whole the whole blues. You listen to the Indians recording when they were the government was recording Indians, and you hear um, Charlie Patton's right. Mm -hmm. Who most musicologists would agree was like the father of the Delta blues. Right. Okay. He begat Mighty Waters. You know. Right. Who begat Howlin' Wolf? You know, you know all that that incredible music, and you hear the rhythm and you hear the tonality, and it's Indian. Yeah, the old Indian American Indian chants. You know, sorry about that. I'll call you back, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Is there is there something that you learned in all of this? or about all of this before you arrived here? Had you any prior knowledge of any of these things? No, not really. Like I said, I played Professor Gives Out, Boogie Woogie. Sure. Um, I had knowledge of jazz. My oldest brother, um, who's like almost seven or eight years older than me, he bought Blue, he bought uh, Time Out, Take Five, I'm sorry, uh, Dave Brubeck. Yeah. So I listened to Brubeck from a young age, and it's still one of my favorite, actually the most popular jazz album ever done, right? Yeah. Um, and it's still a great record to this day, you know? Um, so I was aware of that. I was aware of the blues from Otis Spahn, right? And the blues were in Boston, had a pretty good music scene. But I wasn't really connecting that to New Orleans. I just knew blues, you know, it was Chicago, Memphis, you know, you just figured that. You know, being fairly ignorant and young, um, but I know that I loved it. Right? I didn't know that it was from here. No. Did it? Um, how did you arrive at Wallace? I, I... Oh, well, his family owned land. Okay. And that's where we could camp. Okay. We put a big platform up, and we put we had these big army tents that we'd bought. Wow. Okay. And so we squatted there basically, but with gotcha. permission of the landowners. Yeah. I mean, they have rights between the battery and the river, but they can't, like, build any permanent structure and stuff. You know, that's like, because when the river comes up, that's gone. You right. Know, so. Gotta be more. But that's why we ended up there. Yeah. You know? And you said that when you went to the Baptist church, you were alone, right? I was with, I was with Duke. Okay. I was with well, the grandson of the woman who died. You weren't with anyone that you had come down with. 
Yeah, yeah, Duke Edwards, the guy who formed the Mud People. Oh, okay. He was the one who took me to it. It was his grandmother. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, right. it was like 200 direct descendants. You know, it's like wild, you know. It yeah. was a real privilege to be there. Sure. You wouldn't have gotten there just trying to walk in. It would have been like, mm, no. Yeah. You know, he would go, okay, you know. But no, I was with Duke, so whatever was fine. You sure. Know? And we sat in the back anyway, you know, so. But yeah, that's how I got there. And that's. He was a great lesson in the music here because he was really schooled in it. He'd, uh, he lectured going to the Navy, and uh, then he was, I forget whether it was Berkeley, New England Conservatory, and he was major jazz drummer in New York and Montreal. What was his full uh, name? Duke Edwards. Edwards, okay. And he was uh, actually, I think, number two to Alvin Jones in the Playboy Polls as jazz drummers and stuff. But he could play rock, he could play jazz, he could play anything. Yeah. So that was how I got here. And now we ended up in Wallace, Louisiana, which I still have a warm place in my heart. I'm sure. Then I got to New Orleans, you know, and New Orleans was, as my friend Dana Kurtz says, you know, she says she lived in New York and couldn't get around, she'd get lost, and it's a grid, you know. Right. Yeah, she <laughs> got here and she could get around. And she said, well, I lived here before and it was good. I said, yeah, me too, Dana. You That's know? funny. Because so I walked to French Quarter streets and I, you know, probably was here with a sword on, you know, I mean, it was, you know, I'm very much attuned to my heritage and my ancestors, yeah. you know. Learning what you learned um, and that experience at the wake, um, did it change your direction? Because at the time you were living and performing with a commune, it wasn't as if y'all had uh, like a precise goal or pursuit in mind, I would imagine. No, we didn't have, we were, we were, um, I had some pipe dream of recording. Uh, Duke had gotten a buy from Warner Brothers that if we created something, they would get first dibs on it. Cool. Um, but that that, that commune kind of disintegrated, you know. Sure. Um, because it really wasn't. Um, it was just time for it to disintegrate. It was a positive thing that lasted for a while, then stopped. Sure. You know, um, I faded away from it, and I ended up living here in New Orleans. And it was just uh, it's just really how we got here. Now, Duke was here. He stayed here for a long time. He was in and out here to California and back. He was very instrumental with Louis Armstrong's foundation. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did a lot of stuff for film and other stuff, you know, toward the end of all through his life. He died four or five years ago. Okay. Quite a character and a very positive effect on me. But when I got here, once I got attuned to the city, um, I had a neat girlfriend named Angelica. If you know who that is, you'll know her real name. I ain't going to say it. And, uh, and we were talking yesterday on Facebook about, I put up a picture of early jazz festival when it was two by fours in canvas on the stages, right? And she said, did you go to the, the, the first fairs at the, at the Cougar Square? And I said, yeah, you took me. <laughs> I don't know if it was the first or second one. She said her memory is so bad she couldn't she couldn't figure it out either. Yeah, you know? I'm in that boat. Yeah, for sure. But I was there. You yeah. know, I was there one of them, and uh, and I was there the first year we put the festival at the fairgrounds. We used a third of the fairgrounds, and we were never going to use the whole thing. You know, yeah. and for years I got away with a camper on the infield, and I know Quint for fifty something years, and. Uh, we had a great time. I still have a great time at Jazz Festival. People say, oh, the old days. I said, yeah, the old days were great. It's great now if you know what you're doing and come for the right reasons, you know. I sure. mean, Jazz Festival is interesting. It's not like a lot of concerts you go to where 
you got the people there with their phones talking to their friends about how great it is, not listening to the music. Jazz festival, people tend to pay attention. I'll give you, know? you that, yeah. You know? Some of the swells up in the Grand Marshal, not so much, but we throw things at them, you know, so. Sure. But, yeah, that was definitely a direction you and I were going to move into because you were heavily involved in the AV production side of things, and I wanted everybody to hear <laughs> a little bit about that. Yeah, I... Uh, when I, I, uh, uh, I'd been involved in a club business in the 70s. That's really where this comes in. And uh, I became friends with a character named Jed Palmer, who uh, people have many different feelings about. But you can ask Quint Davis. You can ask Art Neville when he was alive. You know, uh, Jed Palmer was a character. He owned uh, Jed's University Inn on Maple Street. Then he opened up Jed's on... Uh, Oak Street, right across from Maple Leaf. Okay. Right? In fact, we had music all the time. Maple Leaf had sometimes. And we used to pass bad 20s back and forth at 4 o'clock in the morning because the bartenders were drunk too and they'd take, you know. It was fun times back then. And it was, uh, and that's where I got a serious music education and a business education because Jed knew his stuff, you know. Um, I mean, we had the radiators, I mean, they were the Rhapsodizers and played there, right? And then uh, the Neville Brothers' first gig was there, mm -hmm. right? Wow. And Tom Waits would come to town. That's where I met Jesse and became friends with Jesse Winchester. Mm -hmm. When he got amnesty and he could come and play, he just blew us up. He was so good, you know. He was, you know, he was I missed that man. He became a good friend and he died a few years back and he... This one of the sweetest hearts I've ever met, you know, an incredible songwriter and performer. He had a great line for songwriters, which was, say what you got to say, but don't say any more. Sure. You know, and if you listen to his music, you know, I'm pleased to play his songs at parties and stuff. Uh, and Buffett covered a lot of his songs, you know. And Buffett was a great follower of Jesse, you know, because Jesse was that good a songwriter. Sure. You know, and uh, sweet man. But that's... Uh, I got involved with a festival, you know, and and also Jed's, the music here. And Jed's was just the place for music. I mean, that's where Festival Long Hair played before Tipitina's got open. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where McCartney came crashing through our back door to come listen to Festival Long Hair, right? Um, it's where everybody would come after the big shows was over. At 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, it could be... Anybody from, you know, Willie Nelson to, to, to Paul McCartney to, to Springsteen, it didn't matter, you know. Because yeah. where do you go late night? Well, we were the place, you know. Unless you want to go to Bourbon Street, and you really want to go to Bourbon Street, you know. Now, but on Bourbon Street, when I was first here with Angelica, she took me to the Ivanhoe. Mm -hmm. And I had been to Club 47 in Boston with the Chambers Brothers doing time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Live, which was, you know, if you know the song, it's like a 10-minute song, time, <laughs> and it's quite a spiritual event, to say the least. And here I am with the meters, learning how to get their chops, and that's, they played the Ivanhoe, and they were, they were the meters, and to me, one of the best groups, if not the best group that ever came out of this town, you know. Yeah. They had their own internal problems, I know that, because I reunited them in 1980, it's a good show, but they were suing their publisher at the time, and there were some other complications. But 
the Nevils were the opening act, and we shot that too, and that got them their first record contract. Gotcha. So, yeah. But the meters were the meters. I mean, they were, they just, and it, you know, they were poor, you know, in all that time. And then when sampling started, all of a sudden they got healthy. Sure. You know, yeah. before then, George was laying carpet, for Christ's sake. You know? you, right, right. Yeah. Um, Jed's was your introduction to music business. Yeah. And uh, did this, what effect did this have on any particular direction you felt like you were headed in at the time? Because that's a different side of music that doesn't involve yeah. passion so much as it does promotion and the mechanics, you know? <coughs> well, <coughs> for me, it was a passion. Um, because there's too many people in the business who didn't care about the music, right? At that time? Yeah. At that time, there was more people cared about the music, but it disintegrated over time. But there's still people today who are quite famous who very care about the music. When Davis, for instance, you know, and, and a lot of people associated with that festival, right, really care about the music. I didn't hear the name, I'm sorry. Huh? I didn't hear the name. Well, Quint and other people associated oh, okay. with him. You know, gotcha. There's Reggie Toussaint, there's, there's Bad Andy, there's, you know, a lot of production people. I'm not that familiar with the... The, the generations now, you yeah. know, um, I'm old school guy, you know, I'm 72 years old, soon to be 73, and happily, you know what I mean, no, I lived this long, it's pretty cool. Right. But that, that festival between Jed's and that festival, and then there was other festivals I helped with, um, the one out on the Chafalaya River, oh God, Celebration of Life or something in 71 or two or three like that, it's kind of foggy back then. And Bonnie Delaney were playing, and um, um, there's the other group, they did White Bird, and uh, the Dolphin song, which I always thought was their song until I lived in Coconut Grove and found out it was Fred Neal, who was a very famous singer-songwriter, you know, who uh, hit the big time and walked away from it, which was interesting. I started to see that. Um, and you could see, like Tom Waits. Tom Waits is, a, you know, I could, well, there's a lot of musical geniuses in this town. I don't overuse the term. Sure. Because I did produce Ray Charles, who is certifiably a musical genius, right? Sure. But I would look at Dave Bartholomew and say the same thing, yeah. you know? And it's, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, Fats, I, that was my first big national show, is Fats Domino, Ray Charles, Jerry Lee Lewis. Paul Shaver's my music director. I had Ronnie, Ronnie Wood on a side guitar. It had Smokey Johnson playing with Fats, and then I have Steve Jordan playing with the band I put together. I was kidding them, man. We can make some money if you guys want to go on the road, you know. Yeah. You know? But, uh, you know, that was the accumulation of my knowledge then, you know. And uh, and I knew it's always was the thing. I guess I back even, I don't know if it was before I got here or soon there. I know it was after I got here. But I'm looking at, you know, Joan Baez, uh, Dr. John, mm -hmm. a few of them didn't have record contracts and they're promoting bubblegum music, you know, and I'm like, there's something wrong with this picture. Well, and, I mean, we, we both know where that comes from and it's not from the artist, you know. No, no, <laughs> no. Although, sometimes the artists help perpetuate that. When you go on tour and you got to carry a string man and a hairdresser and, a, and two roadies for your gear, you know, the cost goes up, and sure. that's why it's so high. And it's like people bitch about the jazz festival price. I'm like, 
Have you bought the arena tickets recently? You know, it's all out of control, in my yeah. opinion. It's really, which is why I love the clubs. Disheartening. Sure. Which is, I mean, the series that I'm developing right now is to be shot in clubs. It's going to be shot in tips. You know, they don't know it yet, but it will be because I'm hard to say no to when I'm in the Chicky Wawa. Um, there's some great outdoor locations. There's other clubs that are in the mix that. But I have to, I, I've shot a lot of stuff, so I, uh, I'll just executive produce this one, but, you know, I know the vision that I want, and I know what I need, and you got to be able to have a truck. I used to roll like two semis, now I don't need a semi, everything's gotten sure. smaller, you know. Yeah, I wanted to I used to have a 300,000 now I have a $10,000 Sony, it's better. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. things have definitely changed yeah. technology-wise. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, that's a, that's a sharp turn from kind of learning I, I guess you were involved in in uh booking in the the day-to-days of the bar yeah. when you were working at jeds but then when you moved to um production for jazz fest i mean that's a that's a big well leap. i didn't i was i was a consultant to them i didn't really run their productions but i still okay. understood the finances of it right mm -hmm. and I, one of the arguments we had i wanted to cap it at fifty thousand. you know um and I wasn't in favor of the big artists coming in and, you know, much. I mean, yeah, Bonnie, sure. People really connected to New Orleans, you mm -hmm. know. Marsha Ball is New Orleans, so she didn't count. You know, she's here. She's one of us, yeah, I you get know. It. Um, but it's not my show, you know. And I appreciate what the Jazz Festival has done. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing show. I mean... Was it 11 stages now? I mean, you know, it's the biggest smorgasbord of music yeah. in the world. Yeah. Now, if you come here for the big acts, cool. That's all paying for everybody else. Yeah. Know? Because it's go to the Lanyap stage. I won't tell you my favorite one because they're getting crowded already, but there's a couple people who only play that. And one of them is the Midnight Disturbers, if you've ever heard of them. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, my godson turned me on to that a long time ago. I was like, well, how come I don't know about this, you know? And, and Charlie Steiner, who's uh, the head for video at OZ, I turned him on to it, and he was like, how come I don't know about this? I said, I didn't know about it either, you know? So, True. Um, it, it's, there's so many things. Go to the Lanyap stage, go to the small stages, just walk around and listen, you know? It's uh, the heritage stuff, you know? It's... Uh, and that's the thing I love about this city is, is also the thing that's really important about New Orleans is the generosity of the musicians. Mm -hmm. And to tell you an example, one of my dearest friends, uh, Carmela Raposo, great jazz singer, right? And she's playing, it was like right before, right around time of the French Quarter Fest, and she's playing at this art gallery on Royal Street that had like glass windows and doors in front of the French doors down the side, which were open. It was a beautiful day, right? And she's playing with her trio of some great musicians, right? And this dude walks by, and he's got a cello on his back, right? And he looks in, and they're like, she's like, you want to come play? He's like, sure. He comes in, the guy's world-class cello player, and he's been playing with her ever since. Chris is his name. And wow. he, you know, But you don't do that in New York City. It's my gig. No, you don't get on my stage. This is my time. You know, really? You know. Yeah. In this city, it's like, come on, come play with us, you know? Yeah. I get a break. Come sing a song. You know, you don't get that in any other city. And also, part of what I'm putting together, part of the, the uh, theatrical sheets, will be take a guy named, um, like Glenn Hartman, right? One of my favorite, just like keyboard players in New Orleans. Anybody says they're the best 
I tell them by whose measure on what day, right? Because there's, I can name you 10 that are great. Sure. Who's better that day? Yeah. I'm not going to say who's the best. I have a problem with the best. Yeah. Can't general, you just be great? Subjective, yeah. No? Because the best means everybody else is less than. Yeah. Right? No, I mean, we didn't have that problem when it was Dr. John and Fessa Longhair and James Booker. They all just played, you know. Now, Fess would say that the, you know, I forget whether he said it should be Booker or Beard, Bird at the at the front of the parade. I, you know, it doesn't matter. They're both, you know. Well, I mean, some of them were prodigies of others as well. So, yeah. I mean, the pecking order was already predetermined, you know. Right. Yeah, but the other thing with those guys, they all came up. I mean, Booker went to high school with Art Neville. I mean, mm. they were, you know. So two cent too. Anyway, but the uh, forget where I was going. Oh, the uh, the general did like guys like Glenn Hartman. Go back to Glenn Hartman. He's a great keyboard player and an accordionist, right? Now he plays with I don't know all the bands he plays with, but he plays um, Kings of the Small Time. Mm -hmm. He and Alex McMurray, who've been playing together for twenty years. Which is a great two-man show, just really extraordinary. An accordion and a guitar, right? And a microphone, that's it, right? Mm -hmm. He plays with Alex McMurray's band, which is a killer band. Alex is one of the great guitar players in this city and one of the great singer-songwriters. And Joe Carrara is on bass, and, and Carlos was on drums, and now they have different guys playing, which this new show died. Um, great band, right? There's a band called the Klezmer All-Stars, Right, which he plays in that band, right? Yeah. And uh, there's probably a couple I'm missing, right? So one of my theatrical cheats will be, and I'll give this one away for anybody who wants to use it. You know, I'm going to have him shot with one of the bands, but during that shot, I'm going to dissolve him. I'm going to dissolve everybody else and keep the same music going in the background, or maybe have that at a small screen, then put him playing with another band or another band to show that this isn't the only thing he's doing. Right. And some of those other bands will have their own part of the series as well. So. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's just one example. Freaking Alex McMurray, I don't know how many people he plays with. You yeah, know? There's, a lot of, there's a lot of musicians in yeah. the city that play in several bands. George Porter. Right. No, I mean, I remember this, this last, I'm a member of the Threadheads, right, which was a great organization. He and... Uh, Osborne were talking about so who, who was playing the most gigs at Jazz Festival. They're both over 30, mm -hmm. right? And now Andrews is a little younger than George. I know who George is because George is a little older than me, and, and I've been knowing him a long time, you know. And, but he plays, and he's George Porter, George Porter Jr., as he always reminds me that it's George Porter Jr. Mm -hmm. you know? and, uh, but he, again, is a very generous musician, you know. And he's mentored a lot of cats that have come up. You know? Sure. And I was on a stage with him last year or the year before, Gentilly stage. And his band, I've heard the running partners since they started, right? And uh, they were killing it, you know. George came up, I said, man, that was great. He says, best band I've ever had. Well. Really? Meter's a different entity, right? But mm -hmm. it's a. Uh, but that's the generosity of people play with each other, people support each other. Give you an example about food, because that's part of what I'm putting together too, is that Paul Proudhon was a very famous entrepreneur chef here, started Commander's Palace, started K Paul's, his own restaurant. When he was the commander, he had an ad in the paper for somebody who wants to come work, right? 
And a, a guy who I happened to know, didn't know him then, read it. So he just didn't know what he wanted to do. He's 20 years old and, you know, goes to interviews. And, and you know, Paul liked him. And uh, he said, well, what do you want to do? He said, one day I'd like to have my own restaurant. I said, cool. He said, well, there's two things. You can be my fry cook and I'll pay you more money. But that's all you'll do. I'll pay you a little bit less and I'll teach you everything in the kitchen. Well, Frank Wrightson went on to be his sous chef and his number one chef when he nice. traveled to Papua. And seven or eight years later, Paul Proudhon sat down and said, okay, it's time for you to leave. And Frank tells the story. I'm not making this stuff up. And Frank says, well, he said, well, it's time to start your own restaurant. And Paul helped finance it. Wow. That's the, that's the city of New Orleans yeah. in a nutshell. Right? Sure. My favorite restaurant, one of my top favorite <laughs> restaurants is Wrightson's. It's just, you know. My diet doesn't often let me eat there. I've pretty much gone plant-based for my own health, you know. But I can go there once in a while, you know, it's okay. But Frank is a very generous guy. Susan Spicer, those are the two of my favorite chefs in the city. Just There's many of them, but those are the two I've known for 40-plus years. Sure. Um, say, say the uh, restaurant name again. I was clear. Brightson's. 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 It's in the River Bend. Very famous, you know, chef beard, award-winning Stuff. And the other seasons is Bayona and Rosedale, which is my other favorite. Plus, she has Mondo at the airport, so gotcha. they're busy. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's a hard right. business, man. Yeah. That's a hard business. And my friend Jason Sider over here, um, this little seafood joint over here on Hickory in Harahan, and he has live music Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. He's a crawfish cooker. The crawfish boils at the Maple Leaf for him. Right? Scythers. Huh? Scythers, is that the name of yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I never say it right. Um, and they have an outdoor stage over here, right? Mm -hmm. And they, uh, last year, he's the crawfish king as far as I'm concerned in New Orleans. I mean, there'd be other royalty involved, but between what he sold live, what he cooked there, what he cooked for parties, what he cooked for Zapardos is 200,000 pounds last year. <laughs> wow. Man, strong. I mean, that's yeah. that's work. And he's a great, great husband, a great father, and uh, you know, it's a he's just an enjoyable character who totally loves music. Yeah. I mean, absolutely love music. Awesome. I mean, a lot of great artists will play there. You know, it's like from the Tangles to to and from to uh, Alex. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and the the Naked Cowboys, the Desert Nudes, the Desert Nudes, which is uh, um, Andrew Bourne, Andrew. Andre Bourne and <coughs> forget the other guys' names, but they play not country western songs. They play the cowboy songs, yeah, like Marty Robbins stuff, you know. <coughs> the um, the time that you had spent uh, around production at uh, Jazz Fest, did it? Um, what effect did it have on what you're doing now? Because I'm sure it had many facets. It it. Everything I've done in my life, I've always had logistics involved, right? And when you you get involved in logistics, you either get better at it or worse at it, right? Mm -hmm. And watching the jazz festival grow, and I wasn't part of that logistical expansion. I was to a little bit, but watching how important is the expansion, the, how important the logistics is, how you treat people, right? You know, what stages there's a lot of yelling on and what stages there's not so much yelling. In my productions, if you wanted, the only person allowed to yell was me and I wasn't yelling. Mm. 
if you're going to yell and swear, I look at you and go, uh, no, you know, well, I work for so-and-so. Well, yeah, but you're not going to work here if you act like that. Mm -hmm. And people would straighten up pretty much, you know, especially if you're the one writing the checks. They get real, sure. they decide that helps. they should yeah. listen, you know. But understand, watching that thing grow from three stages to just when it was up to four or five, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and the amount of work it took, you know, from the from the lowly stagehand is not lowly, he's essential. Right? The guy who's pulling wires, the guys who's plugging them in, the guys rolling the amps, you know. I mean, back when we used to hump them before we <laughs> roll them, you know, I mean. And when there's an emergency, I jump in to help, you know. When it get rained out, I work with home team to help clear the wells and stuff, you know, the drains, all the tarps would go on the drains, and then you'd have the Acura Lake, you know, which people would swim in that water, and I'm like, you know, how many bacteria are living in that water? You don't want to know how <laughs> yeah, many are in the dice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but that gave me a healthy, really healthy respect for logistics. I learned a lot of the jets in a smaller way, right? Because a lot of people load in and load out, you know, and that you jets. see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. You know, because like Taj came in there carrying a ten-piece band. He was doing his world music, you know, and that's. Wow. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, and then Tom, yeah. Funny story, I'll tell you one last story about Tom Waits. He uh, had his song, a postcard from a hooker in Minneapolis, right? And uh, Jed was a nut. Jed was wild. Now, Jed did a lot of things, including starting Zoo to Do, which people don't know about. But Ottoman Zoo was dump. But he got involved in that and world-class Sue now. Anyway, so Jed and I, we see the late night at Jed's is where a lot of people came up from the quarter to hang out, including some of the working girls, you know? It was a different era. It's pre-herpes, pre-A's, all that stuff. Okay. And they were buds, because they were just, they could come hang out and listen to music at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they were done with their job for the night, right? Sure. Which was working girls, you know? People would call it prostitute, I call it sporting girls, right? Anyway, um... And Jed says, man, can we get, we bet you we get one of those girls to do a burlesque during the song. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. Me being as crazy as Jed, right? Well, yeah. Close to being as crazy. See where it goes. <laughs> so, um, and they're like, well, who do I got to screw? And we're like, no, 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 no. You just got to do a burlesque. Oh, really? No. One time I was somebody who could do a burlesque off the spot, you know, came all dialed up and did two sets and left with two guys. I mean, but Tom was like, you guys, we told him we were going to do this during yeah. rehearsal. He said, you're not doing it. Said, oh, yeah, we did that, you know. Flipped him out, totally flipped him out. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, what's up, everybody? Normally, in the middle of podcasts, they give you a bunch of advertisements. But on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out our members. Today, I've got a solo guitarist for you by the name of Ross Shields, who's also known as Ross Man. Y'all might remember him from the New Orleans own alternative radio station, The Zephyr, 106.1 FM, where he was an on-air personality in the 90s. From there, he went to B97 FM for Planet B Radio Show. His radio career led him to San Diego, California, at 91X FM, where he was the highest rated on-air talent for 10 years. He guest performed with countless artists during his time in radio and also at CPR Fest in Biloxi. He moved back to New Orleans to take a gig in internet broadcasting from Bourbon Street. 
He has since retired and has dedicated his time to playing guitar and writing and producing his show, Psych Ward, on a local podcasting platform by the name of itsneworleans.com. He's thrilled to be back, and he's a solid axe man. So bands, reach out if you're in need. You can message him on neworleansmusicians.com by going to our musicians page and typing in Rossman. Here's Ross Mann on guitar playing with the Spotted Dog Blues Band in a track called Cinnamon Whiskey. Check it out. And now back to our show. Anyway. You know, it's funny. Um, not too long ago, I had finished uh, uh, Dr. John book Under a Hoodoo Moon, and he talks about in the seventies, basically an ecosystem that was unto itself, whereby uh, people that worked the streets looked out for the club owners. The club owners looked out for them, and they kind of worked hand in hand. They worked with each other to as proponents of each's trade. And yeah. there weren't there weren't very many problems, you know. Right. There was more street justice than there was uh, litigation, but I mean that's kind of healthy in, in itself as well, you know. But it was funny to me to hear how how well people. It sounded like they worked together. I wasn't there, obviously, but it sounded like they just worked together better back then. Absolutely. As Bobby Dylan wrote the line, "To live outside the law, you must be honest." Right. And everything's against the law when you get down to it. You know, having a good time, according to some people, is against the law. And yeah, did the dealers and the club owners get along? Yeah. Did the did the did the hookers and the and the hotels get along? Yeah. You know, um, people had to be cool about what they're doing. Remember, in the seventies, Lucky Pierre's was open. I sure. mean, Lucky Pierre's was. Um, I took my wife there. <laughs> Well, we had, we had just met. She was here for a TV convention, and I was at a guy selling my meters and Neville shows, who I thought was her brother. It turned out to be her ex-husband. And uh, when I asked him in the elevator, it's all right if I went out with his sister. He says, I don't know. I don't have a sister, but you can go out with my wife if you wanted to. I'm like, oh, but they've been apart for several years. Okay. Ended up marrying her. <clears throat> but we, we don't want to go out to eat something at 2 o'clock in the morning. So we went to Lockheed's. Mm-hmm. Right, we're sitting at a big round table with about eight or eight or nine people, <clears throat> and one of her girlfriends said, well, "What are all those pretty girls doing at the bar?" And uh, Andrea was a pretty smart cookie, and she said, "Oh, I think they're working." You know. By the way, yeah, yeah they were. That's what they were there for. You know, and uh, but that was that was the seventies. I mean, Lucky's was there. I mean, I, first time I went into Lucky Frankie Ford is playing "House of the Rising Sun" in the front bar and piano. I'm like, what? I think I found the place. Yeah. Know? I mean, you know, so that's, you know, I moved back here from Miami about Coconut Grove about three years ago. And I've been back and forth the whole time. I mean, I would spend a quarter of the year here anyway. And mm-hmm. My heart's always here. Like Chris Rose says, New Orleans is the only city who lives in you, you know. Yeah. And 
I knew I was going to come back, and I sing that song since I've been 15 years old, you know. And going back to spend my days in the house of the rising sun, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and I knew I needed to come home, and this is home to me, you know. I got here in 1970, and my spirit never really left. I was back in New York for nine years, and in Manhattan, and then Brooklyn, and HBO specials, but I'm down here doing them, right? <clears throat> and uh, then we all moved back here with my family, and then we moved to South Florida, but I was still here all the time, you know. Yeah, you know. sure. My son was, uh, you know, um, he was, he heard, he had crawfish and the Neville brothers in, in utero, right? And my wife was at that time, whatever May is to August, that he was born in August, so he, she was pregnant with him. Mm -hmm. And eating crawfish and dances in the Neville Brothers. So he didn't have a prayer not liking his music. Exactly, you know? yeah. He's now a Navy commander, which is a big deal, you know. But he's got a great musical taste. So sure. Started out, you know, pre-breath, you know. So predetermined, yeah. Predetermined, yeah. You had talked, you had mentioned uh, the HBO special, and I believe Lifetime, too. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I had, well, I shot the meters and Neville's in 80, right? And I ended up moving to New York and working in the TV and film business, more in the film distribution business, learning that business, but all the time still in music, still back and forth to down here. The meters in the 80s was Jazz Fest. You were working at Jazz Fest? No, 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 no. no. I was working in New York City. Oh, okay. But I was down here all the time going to Jazz Fest and gotcha. hanging out with my gang there. We had a, we've had a gang for a long time there. A lot of them were faded away, a lot of them died, there's a few of us left, right? Sure. The old school jazz festers were part of that gang, right? Alan Langhoff and Malone and, you know, and the whole gang. Anyway, um, and what happened was that my wife worked for HBO but in distribution, right? Okay. And I heard the scuttlebutt that they wanted to do something putting great talent together and having them play live, right? No known region? It was just anywhere? No, whoever could put together the shows. Okay. And they did one with Carl Perkins, but it wasn't a session. It was kind of like a bunch of guitar players playing, you know, on folding chairs, and it was okay, but it was... And so they wanted a real cinematic session series. And I had Fats Domino and Jerry Lewis in my pocket. Mm -hmm. I was at the first <clears throat> inaugural Rock and Roll Hall of Fame dinner sitting with them and there's Ray and there's Keith and I'm like you know I wanted Keith to play it but Keith was like I can't do it because he'd been here too long he couldn't come back that quick he would lose his tax status right Keith who? Keith Richards okay. from the Stones losing his tax status <clears throat> but he working said, in the States gotcha yeah but he said Woody will do it you know so um Little I, I didn't know then that Woody had run into uh, Jerry Lee when he was like 14 years old, when Jerry Lee was big, when he got busted, having married his 14-year-old cousin and right. all that stuff. And Paul Schaefer was uh, somebody I peripherally knew. And so I put it, I pitched it to HBO with, with Fats and Jerry Lee, and they were real interested, you know? And they were like, well, who else can you get? And I'm like... Who do you want? And they were like, well, how about Ray Charles? And I'm like, little did I know that that was about the hardest get in the business, right? Mm. Because Ray's manager, uh, 
Mr. Jones, was the guy in the movie who became his partner. Mm -hmm. And he was his partner, right? And I, you know, called him up. Very politely, he said no. I said, okay. But as a producer, you have to learn to get around the agents and the managers, right? Right. And there was a guy named Roy Gaines who played with the Jazz Crusaders and he played with Ray for 10 years, Mm -hmm. right? We had a connection to him. And I said, do this and you get to play on a gig, get a good associate producer credit and a little fee, you know? And he went to Ray, his house. And said, Ray, they're doing a tribute to Fats Domino. Will you play at it? And Ray said, yeah, good. I'll do it. Call my manager. So now I'm calling up Joe Adams again. I said, Joe Adams is his name. I said, oh. He said, yeah, I heard. <laughs> you know, But <clears throat> Joe Adams is always straight with me. He was always fair with me. Yeah. When I went to him 10 years later to re-up the video rights, he didn't have to do it or he could have held me up, and he didn't. Mm-hmm. One of the best compliments I ever had is he said, you know, we always loved this. Ray was already dead. He said, we always loved this show. I'll give it to you standard, 10 cents a DVD, which is like, yeah, you know, freaking Ray Charles. But anyway, <clears throat> then I put together the band and with Paul Schaefer and Ronnie Wood. Uh, uh, Dave Cowens? No, it's not Dave Cowens. Cowens, he's the bass player for... BG's and Streisand, he lived out there in the country outside of Baton Rouge. And Smokey was supposed to play drums for us, but he just couldn't, you know, he was stuck in New Orleans music. He played with Fats, and then we brought in Steve Jordan. <clears throat> and so we had Roy Gaines and, and Ronnie Wood on guitar. And it was an amazing show, you know, we kind of pulled that out, you know, by the seat of my pants, flying pretty blind, you know, and uh, my feeling to this day is that the gods of music made that happen. Well, <laughs> sure. You know, because what does a 30-year-old producer do when Ray Charles walks off the stage? Yeah, I'm going to sue you. Yeah, right. His lawyers, lawyers would eat my lawyers for breakfast. Yeah. Right? You just, you know, you got to have a lot of power to come up against somebody like that. But they did. They played, you know. And in truth, it was, it was Paul Schaefer... Jerry Lee Lewis and Ronnie Wood, who held that show together. Yeah. Hard to believe. It was Ronnie's 40th birthday, right? And they came to work. You know, Jerry Lee's wife was acting up. He sent her back to Nashville. You know? They came, they came to play, which is just a great thing. And that was a, it was a big success. Rave reviews in the New York Times. And, yeah. Uh, then I did a big jazz show here with uh, Sarah Vaughn. And my man Al Hurt, Dizzy Gillespie, and Maynard Ferguson, and Chuck Manjone with Hancock, Carter, and Higgins as the band. That's Miles Davis Quartet. Wow, yeah. Now, Sarah brought her trio, but then she played, and it was, you know, she and Diz did Round Midnight Acapella. And she apologized to me the next day that she did it, she did it, she scattered it, right? She said, I'm so sorry. I said, got up there, I sung the song a thousand times, and I forgot the opening worse first. <laughs> yeah. So once you start scanning, I said, Sarah, it's great. You know? yeah. I mean, sure. she became a friend. So. Yeah, well, improv Sassy is, is, Juan, is magical. Uh, the, the HBO special, what was the, the name of it? There was two. There was Fats and Friends, Fats Domino and Friends. Okay. There was Sass and Brass. Uh-huh. And the last one I did for them, which is the last of the series, was was Caliente o Picante, hot and spicy, or Latin series, Latin session. 
Okay. That was, I shot that in L.A. <laughs> the the um, <clears throat> that was a good show too. That was you know, Santana, Ruben Blades, uh, Tito Puente, Celia Cruz, Jerry Garcia. Beautiful. And uh, Linda Ronstadt, but she only gave me TV. She never gave anybody video ever. So mm -hmm. you know, and that was okay. That's Linda. You know, a lot of respect for her. So um, the the first one that came out, the tribute to Fats. Uh, what year are we talking? You said it was early eighties, huh? Oh, okay, eighty six or eighty seven when it came out. I think it was 86. 86. 86, yeah. Because um, I was, was going to point hit. out... It was a big hit. I was also going to point out how strong HBO was at that time. HBO yeah, they was, were putting the money into music. Yeah, you know? they, not uh, only music, but, I mean, comedy, too. They had their own comedy oh, yeah. specials with, yeah. with big names, you know? Yeah, well, Michael Fuchs was running it then. And Fuchs, it's like absolutely fabulous, was pitched to the departments, and they turned it down, and somebody got to Michael. Michael said, no, we're buying that, which was absolute success for them. Mm-hmm. In the sessions, you know, I go talk with him, you know, and, you know, I'm just a little low-life, mild, small producer. They're playing a pretty big game, you know, and uh, he'd tell me how much they loved it, you know. Chris Albrecht would send me notes from California. He was in charge. He was the guy who green-lighted Sopranos, for Christ's sake, you know, and they're like, man, you do a great job, you know. Yeah. That was the guy who'd rocked the boat a lot, but, you know, we made great programming, which was... Again, the artists, you know, and mm -hmm. also my crew. No, that's the other thing. You say back how to learn production, and you learn how important everybody is. You know, the sound guy, sure. the guy pulling the wires. You know, the guy uh, doing the catering. All mm -hmm. that stuff makes the troop work. It's like an army. You got to feed an army. You yeah. got to respect the army, right? And when you start doing that for real, I mean, I'd have a hundred people working for me. I'd wow. have like five and then it would go up to like 15 and then there'd be the two-week period where it's full on mm -hmm. and then it's tapers down yeah but you have to set the attitude and have the people with you my crew Len Delamico directed everything I've ever done from 1980 to 1984 mm -hmm. Tom Drukey was my quote-unquote technical director but he was always my co-producer right um, he retired as chief engineer for MSNBC Veronica Loza was my editor and camerawoman, right? Um, <clears throat> Juan Barrera was one of my handheld camera guys. He did NFL sidelines to stay in shape, right? And this crew was, you know, you know, they had done, they came out of Capitol Theater, which shot 200 shows in black and white New Jersey. They shot spring scene before anybody knew who he was. They wow. did, if you look that up, their show with Warren Zevon was just like, on fire, you know. I mm. mean, so they they had done this starting out with really terrible little black and white cameras. So they had they had evolved organically that way. So sure. they, they uh, in, in fact, when I came out of the building with Len and Tom, <coughs> my director, my line producer, <coughs> after meeting with HBO, they wanted to meet my production team, and we're sitting on the sidewalk, and they, I forget which one said. I think it was Len. He said, David. How did you get them to pay us to do what we've always wanted to do? Yeah. Which was what was just our dream to do something like that. Sure. And why I got in was the big boy producers, the one who were doing Dolly Parton, and you know, is that they went on the road. They knew every star turn, they knew every joke was coming, they plot the cameras before the show, right? You knew what was gonna happen. And they didn't want to touch this thing, half million dollar budget, and it was gonna be like them playing. And so you had to catch it. I mean, we did two shows in the same night. That was my only safety net. 
Okay. <laughs> it's not much of a net, but... <clears throat> and then the final product, we cut between the two shows. Mm-hmm. But it was really um, that I had that energy, right? That we wanted to do it. We cared about it. I turned down shows later in my career that were music I just didn't really appreciate. It was fine. Personal taste. Personal taste. Yeah. And, you know, successful. Some of the real amped up country, you know, overproduced country stuff, you know. It yeah. just wasn't, it wasn't, be, wasn't fair to them for sure. me to do it, you know. But... You know, that, that, see, like the crew is, like I said, back to logistics, you know. Um, there was other people involved that were like um, chief roadies almost. They, they were production assistants or you give a prize, uh, best, best, best boy and key grip, right? Those sure. are two things that producer science, right? And one of those on the first show was Michelle Nugent who went on to run the food at the jazz festival for 30 years. Nice. That's a woman who knows logistics. You know? yeah. she, uh, and I just kept, she keeps shoveling work on people and the ones we do it and rise up, you just keep giving them more work and you, you promote them and give them more money and just see how long they'll work for you. Sure, you know? so, yeah. But it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's all about a team. I mean, you know, you know, yeah, I made those shows, but that's a big I. It's like we made those shows. Sure, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah, I have the same lighting director for all of them, Moisey, right? And uh, if any of them fell over dead, I could do their job about half as good as they did it. But I could do it. That's the way it goes, yeah. But I would kick Veronica out of one chair and put her in the director's chair, and I'd sat in the the AD's chair, you know. Um, But I didn't have to do that. These Mm -hmm. guys were pros, you know. These people, um, what were the releases for the string of HBO features. Uh, They must have been in close succession to be able to retain such a large team throughout the the entire. No, they were just, they worked for a lot of people, but Lennon went on to work for the Grateful Dead for a long, long time. And he got that gig after we did the Meters and Neville show, right? Mm -hmm. Um, (coughs) Video support, but uh, it shot a lot of stuff for them. Gotcha. But my, my continuity was really just the relationships we had. Mm-hmm. There was no contractual relationship. It was, other than the fact that I wasn't going to shoot, do a show without them. Yeah. You know, it was, and we knew that. And it's like, it's funny, they'd call me dad, and we're all the same age, right? <laughs> yeah. But I didn't want their job, and they didn't want my job. Yeah. You know, because when you're executive producer and producer, you're juggling, you know? You may have a big ego, but you better put it in your back pocket because I got a superstar over here. I got a client over here. I got an audience over here. I got this guy's manager who's like a little bit of a pain in the ass. But you, you got to shoot the show, you yeah. know? And really, I kind of looked at it. My job was to get them all on stage at the same time, and then I'd turn it over to my crew. I'd say, you know, I'd light the fuse and say, okay, yeah, shoot it. Now, I was in Fats and Friends. Because we needed interstitial footage, and we ended up shooting all these scenes at the bar. And Wardrobe dressed me up as a bartender, and I had my little name tag, David. Nice. And, I, and Paul had a great solace that I was right there doing that. And I had a set of cans underneath the bar, you know, and I'd sit there and he'd be talking with Fats and Jerry Lee. And, you know, it was it was pretty interesting. It was a wild night. It was yeah. a wild night. What did it, I guess in your opinion, or maybe factually, what did it enable you to do? moving forward 
Because, I mean, you establish uh, an immeasurable amount of credit with yeah. people that maybe that didn't credit. know your name before. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm still on that credit to some degree. And that credit was like with musicians. <coughs> musicians, yeah, they want to get paid, but what they really care about is you treat their music well, right? Mm -hmm. And some of the other producers of television we're okay with that. It was business, though, you know. And no, I'm only going to spend twenty grand on post production. I'm not going to spend fifty. I'd spend a fifty, and I'd put the money into the mix, you know. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, not just slap together a hot edit, you know. Sure. And uh, well, visuals most people pay attention to, but not so much the sound. And I always, I because I was a musician, right? It mattered to you. It mattered to me, you yeah. know. I'd been on that stage. You know, not on those stages those guys rose to, but I'd been on a stage in front of people, right? And it mattered. That was what was important, was the sound. And that's carried me to this day. Um, you know, uh, I, well, I call a book Ron Carter, and he's like, okay, who am I playing with? He didn't care about the money. Money was fine. Huh? I said, well, you're all band. He said, he's what all band? I said, well, Hancock and, and, and Billy Higgins. He says, Okay, whatever I got to do, I'm there, you know. And I had to buy a seat for his damn bass, you know, but that was part <laughs> of the deal, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> wonderful character. And still is to this day, Ron Carter. <clears throat> one of the giants of the uh, stand-up bass, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's really about caring about the music, and that gave me a lot of credibility uh, when I finished that series, I had some other things going on. I had I had developed a bunch of scripts and went down that rabbit hole, um, and and kind of got out for a while because you know when it's not happening, you better find another way to make a living because sure. it's very sporadic, you know. Um, and I made some big mistakes. There was uh, uh, my drinking was one. The other one was that. I had, you know, when you get into those positions when you're younger, you got to do it all yourself. You got to figure it all out, right? Absolutely. And there was older, wiser people that were available to me, and they didn't want anything. They would have been happy to help me. Mm -hmm. But I did not know enough to ask for help, yeah. right? Or can anybody take a look at what I'm doing and see if, you know, like, for instance, be pitching other networks in the middle of your show. That's when you're supposed to pitch, not when it's done. Because that's when you're hot. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I gave MTV the Unplugged series because they weren't going to pay me enough money. So I told Tom Furston the concept. He was president at the time. And I, you know, do it. You know, I, I should have done it, you know. Um, but it's really, you grow, you know. And the music business is like the mafia. You never get out. You know, unless you don't care, <laughs> unless you don't care about it, right? Yeah, sure. You know, and I've always cared about it. I've always cared about these musicians here. And some of them do well. A lot of them struggle. A lot of them play a lot of gigs to put bread on the table, and that's one of the reasons that I'm kind of back in the game. You know, working on a combination of <coughs> the music, <coughs> the food, the beauty of the city. Yeah. Not just throw me some beads, Mister. You know. Sure. <clears throat> and it's here, you know. I have some other major hooks to go in it that would allow companies to fund it. Because uh, I, I learned a long time ago with the Meters and Devils, you don't make it on spec. 
you have to have a contract. You have to have somebody who's going to, whether you're going to stream it or broadcast it, they got to pay a significant part of the budget, right? Or else you better not make it. You know, you, you, Deacon John, you can go out and make a beautiful show, but it wasn't made here. You know, they right. didn't have the ability to build the PR for it. They didn't have a time slot for it. So one of the things, this thing is a series, so you can have its own time slot. Well, frame it up for us. What's the proper title and, you know. Working you're title is There Will Be Dancing. There Will Be Dancing. All right. yeah. You're giving us bits and pieces, but, you know, what, is it, what does it encompass? What is its focal point or points? Focal point is let the world know why every major musician in a planet comes to New Orleans to learn. Okay. <coughs> that the music that they know from the Stones, I mean, the, the one thing about the English cats is they always gave us credit for the music. You know? Absolutely. You know, where the root of that music is. And we're it. You know, it's like Dylan. You know, it's, he loves a lot of cities. He likes New Orleans the best. Mm -hmm. You know? Also, one of my other favorite quotes is The devil came to New Orleans and he sighed, which I just think is. It's ironic enough for me, let me put it that way, you yeah. know. And, you know, whether it's Elton John or McCartney or it's, it's Santana, any any of them, you know. And, you know, who doesn't love coming to New Orleans? Who doesn't love our food and our music, right? But we need to get them paid better for it. Sure. You know, and give them a way to... It's like Thread has to put out, I don't know, 100 CDs. And most all of them have paid back the money for doing it, but they didn't make any money, you know? Right, right. You know, you're going to give you five, ten grand to make something, but, you know, where's the other ten grand to promote it? It's also a problem, how do you promote something these days? That's a whole other kettle of fish, you know? Yeah, that's a shotgun pattern. <laughs> so the, this... Um, so this, you get a TV series, like I'm trying to do, that's how you promote it, you know? Sure. Um... How, so you're basically establishing value and kind of uh, raising awareness. It's an overused term, but you're establishing value and kind of illustrating the hows and whys of not just heritage in general, music, food, right. um, Art. And the, the influences. Yeah. Does it um, does it start in the past? I mean, how do you go about doing this? Do you start present day or do you touch on the roots? I mean, you have uh, to touch on the roots. Present day people plan. Okay. But then you cut back to the history. You know? Okay. So there's a bit of the why. As yeah. To yeah. The, I okay. mean, here it is. Boom. You know. Yeah. You know, and but then you go to the why. You know, yeah. and then you go to the joy, food. You know, then you come back to the music, mm -hmm. and you roll credits. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people that come down here are wowed initially, and they don't know what's behind it all. Yeah. There's there's more behind it. You know. Well, you um, talk to artists like David Torkanowski or, or John Cleary, and they know the history here. I mean, there's dozens of artists who do, but there can be art, articulate about it, you know? Sure. Um, some of the characters involved in our music scene here, the uh, director of music at OZ is very knowledgeable cat. You know, it's um, um, jazz festival folks, you know, the production folks that have been there a long time, you know, they... You know, they know the good times and the bad times. You sure. Know? And, uh, and I hope to bring as much of that to the forefront as we can. You mm -hmm. know, it's, uh, but then again, somebody's got to pay for it, you know? Yeah. So I try to do that. Oh. I'll call my honey back. You know? The, um, 
I was talking to uh, Chris Barry not too long ago, who is uh, on the board for the Louisiana Music and Heritage Museum. That's right. that's um, kind of being spec'd out, and uh, hopefully will be uh, coming to fruition in the next yeah. couple of years. And um, it struck a chord with me because I had recently went to Stax. Um, recording studio which is a museum now in right. memphis and um they take the time to before you walk through and see all of these artifacts and kind of get dazzled by the different things the cars and costumes and and audio equipment yeah. and all this stuff they take the time to sit you down and give you a short curated presentation that gives you an understanding of what you're about to see before you see it and i think that the Louisiana Music and Heritage Museum is going to do the same thing. Right. I may steal some of that myself. Effectively. Yeah. And I feel like shows like yours accomplish that effectively because it's something that needs to be pointed out. It's not right. just come down to Mardi Gras. For so many years when I was younger, that's all I did was just go get shit-faced and <laughs> because it's Mardi Gras and I don't even know what the hell it is, but let's get shit-faced. And I think people kind of use this as a tourist uh, attraction just to get blitzed and you know maybe they get to see the sites maybe they don't but they don't realize there's there's hundreds of years behind what you're looking at yeah you know it, it could be something as simple as the design of that mask Indians, you know yes it, exactly yeah and uh, I so I think it's important to have shows like you're talking about that illustrate these things and kind of lay it out for people to give it more importance yeah more social relevance yeah. you know yeah, I hope so. I hope it uh, as it progresses down the road, I'll give you a call. We can do some more talk about it. I mean, yeah. uh, I like that curated synopsis. It may have to be a a link you can go to on a if it's streaming. You say, okay, here's a here's a background on this. Sure. On this 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 show of the series. Yeah. You know? And that gives you some other room. It's also for streamers. They you know they want audience. You know. Murdoch, who I loathe, actually, Rupert Murdoch, but he did, unfortunately, a very smart man, said, you know, content is king, you mm -hmm. know, and um, we need more positive content. I'm very disappointed by most music stuff. It's really shot poorly or, or they don't, you can tell they don't give a shit or they didn't put the budget into it, you know. Um, you talking about visual production? Yeah, like okay. a lot of stuff done at the White House. You know, some of them have done good. Some of them, like God, you know, you 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 cut in a voiceover for the bathroom. You know, somebody introducing somebody, and they don't even match. <laughs> the, it's not that hard to match the sound in the room. You sure. can do it. You know. Yeah. Nah, it's just cheaper. Do that. I'm like. Yeah. You know, you got Buddy Guy playing, and you're gonna, you know, just not. But that's one producer who's done a lot of shows, and, he, and I give him a lot of credit in some ways. But you know, he should have hired me to be his be his co-producer. You know? That's funny <laughs> that you mentioned that because um, I kind of associate it more so with musicians. Uh, let's say I'm talking to a bassist, and we touch on how once he's playing bass for a while, it becomes a lens with which to see the world differently because. You can listen to that song as a listener for the whole the song as a whole, or he can go back and listen to it, and all of a sudden, all he hears is the bass. 
Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? So, so as a, a, a pro, uh, someone in production, um, does that have the same effect on you after years um, of producing shows? Do you start to see past the storyline and into the the production value? I guess. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like for me. You know, you see a lot of stuff that's done well. It's on YouTube and other things. And you can see how much of it is pseudo-live, but it's pretty canned. They're not playing the track, but they rehearse this and the little Contrived, jokes they do, you know? I prefer. I mean, they, right. they're just kind of laboring over making something seem natural. I don't like that. But then again, there's ones who do it well, you know? I'm thinking Bonnie Raitt with uh, Mo, Kev Mo. You know, it's like... But they actually, their music speaks louder than their words. Sure. You know, and they kind of just have to do a little bit of banner, and then they they go for it. But Bonnie's Bonnie. Bonnie's great, you know. And, uh, you know, I've been a fan of hers for, I don't know, 40 years or something like that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but it's, it's all about caring about the music and finding a way. I mean, I, I've looked for the gods of music to help me out here, you know. They helped me out before. It's time. I'll ring that bell again, you know. Sure. Say, I'm ringing it right now hard, you know. It's like, and I have a feeling it's going to happen. Things are falling in place. People are falling in place. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I haven't won the lottery, so, you know. I, I can't have seem to, make to do shows, that either. You know? I, I, I don't know. I'm speechless <laughs> when it comes to that. Um <laughs> Is there any kind of uh, timeline or prospectus that we can I'd look like for things I'd like to pitch the show <coughs> to the powers that be. Uh, either in, in the, the times to pitch it is either now through November and then January, February, like that. Yeah. For the for the buyers, you know, it used to be traditionally that way in television, but it still kind of goes on that, you know. Um, and ebbs and flow of the industry, you know. So I, I hope to uh, carry the ball a little bit further down the road this month to where it's actually a presentable wish to hmm. put out there. Sure. You know, you really want to do this, I'll put more of it together for you. But I can't commit artists until I pay artists, you know. Sure. Um, um, and the same with different celebrities that I want to have involved in it to bring the hook in, you know. Sure. And, and, uh, why they go to New Orleans and why you should, you know. Absolutely. And those of us here, why you should get out and hear the music. I love the more places to play early shows, you know. I mean, uh, yeah, you're going to have the college crowd. They want to go out at 10, 11 o'clock and drink, and then that's cool. That's how you make money. Yeah. But you look at places like, you know, uh, anywhere from the Maple Leaf to, to Chickawawa, you know, that 6 to 8, 8 to 10, you know, you know. Seven and nine. Those shows, you got a lot of people who can go to those shows. You got family, you got jobs. Sure. But, you know, they want to hear the music, but mm -hmm. you got to make it available for them in a in a system and in a way they can do it. Mm -hmm. you know? On this show, uh, there will be dancing, correct? Yeah. Um, is there anything that you can see early on that you're going to be scouting or looking for? Anybody that might be listening now, um, from Locations. musicians to uh, people that find anything, yeah. anything, if you want to put it out there. Yeah, I do want, I, I do need to tie into Lafayette. I want to do the Cajun, you know. I was a, very lucky to be here at Clifton Chenier at Jay's Lounge and Cockpit back in his early 70s, which was 
really a cool thing. Didn't know how cool it was until right. later. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, but that's the only thing really outside of this area. Although people like, you know, people like Marsha Ball, she was born on the, on the border, so she's born, she's one of us, you know. Sure. Um, um, people who can bring things to the table. Um, I am looking at the tourist board. I am looking at the hotel association, you know. Mm -hmm. Some of those people are smart enough to know it's like, um, we get more people to come, it'll do us all good. Instead of, well, come, but you got to come stay at the X hotel, you know. No, yeah. just come here, we'll find a way for you. you yeah. know? And the same with the restaurants, you know. it's uh, Nobody's put, to, to my knowledge, nobody's put together something that would be easily and, and kosher for a lot of those entities to get behind without the tail wagging the dog, all right? Looking to make it so I'm doing it in, in, in X Hotel's ballroom with the Hilton or the Hyatt or any of the other ones. Um, I don't mind showing them, you know. There's some of the jazz they put on is pretty cool, yeah. you know. Um, but it's really the load, it's really the underneath here. It's really what, where the mu real music is. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the point. Collins Hotel is doing great stuff, mm -hmm. right? And I can shoot in that place, you know. Things have gotten small. I don't have to bring in a $300,000 Gagami that's as big as this couch, you know. Yeah. You know, you don't have to do that, so. Sure. But I get to go on down the road, buddy. It's uh, been Thank a pleasure, Thank you for your time, man. man. I do appreciate it's, it. Uh, I got you. I think you're, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. Oh, you know? yeah. All of us, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the point. Sure. Why does George keep playing? Because he can. Yeah, that's right. And he's good at it, you <laughs> yeah. know? Now, there's artists that need to hang it up, you know? It gets to a point, if you can't do it, don't do it. Yeah. It's one thing we learned from Otis Spine. Last story, He's we're doing this in the basement of this place in, in Cambridge and, or Boston, and he's working with this band. He's playing with us and stuff, you know? And he asks, he says, okay, what do you do if you're supposed to play and you just don't have it, right? You just don't have it. And Brendan, really, our consensus, well, you go do the best you can. He says, no. If you don't have it, don't do it. Give somebody else a chance you got. You go up and do it. Yeah. You know, if you can't bring it, it's one of the reasons I term, you know, who is it? How about Papa Molly? Oh, he can bring it. What about Sanchez? He can bring it. You yeah. Know? You know, what about the Trumpet Mafia? Well, you know, there's, there's so many acts in this town. I can do 50 of these shows and keep going. Out know? of respect for the craft. Then, yeah, because yeah, then those 50 bands will create 50 more bands. It's sure. like jazz festival. How many bands can I create? You know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's good. But I got to get going, buddy. All right, People thank you, man. On me and I appreciate it, man. You know, let me see what you've done to my poor self. But, you know, I'm uh, oh, in the best light possible. Yeah. Check it out. We all pretty much start off like jam bands. We get together, we push our souls out through the speakers. We look around the stage and read off of one another. And, you know, after so much time, we know where the next person is going. Aside from those connections, we build connections with the fans. And that means the world to us. That's why listeners like yourself are so important to us. We'd love to have you back, so hit the button and follow the show. You can also support this show by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash New Orleans Music. That's buymeacoffee.com slash New Orleans Music. And remember, you can find music videos, albums, articles, 
and interviews with bands like my own, Pocket Chocolate, on NewOrleansMusicians.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>